So this is an amoeba. And in this video, it's consuming bacteria. All of those vibrating specks that you see around are bacteria. This is Andy Marsh. She refers to herself as a soil restoration practitioner. Now, Andy's equipped with her microscope and she's translating her observations to me of a small sample of compost under magnification. And once, as it's ingesting them, it's taking what it needs nutrient-wise. And then once it's full, it'll actually like release all of these nutrients that it doesn't need. And those nutrients are water soluble, which means plants can take them up. That's really important because when a plant takes up that nutrient and then we consume that plant, that nutrient then becomes part of our bodies. What? Okay, are you guys following along here? Andy just said that the foundational building blocks of you and I, for all living organisms, as a matter of fact, comes from amoebas and other microbiological living organisms taking shits. And the nutrients that's in their waste is then fixed to a plant, utilized by that plant, feeds that plant, nourishes that plant, grows that plant. And then what comes along next, whether it be a bison, a bear, a duck, maybe even a hungry vegan. Well, you get the point. Whatever eats that plant, those minerals, those nutrients now become a part of their body. Carbon, I think of as the building block of life. So carbon is the building block of life because its atomic structure is really unique in that it can bond with a lot of different atoms, including itself. And so that's why it's so pervasive in biology, um, is it's, it's very uh, a stable molecule, um, something that's carbon-based. And so I see carbon as this unique thing that can transition from a living organism, from one living organism to another living organism, or from inert substances, uh, like mineral substances, to living organisms. Now here my mind is getting blown into another solar system because I just assumed that the building blocks of my body came from living organisms, but... Andy has specifically clarified that through living organisms in soil, that carbon, the carbon that we're made from, can also be extracted or mined from inert, non-living materials. So that means that some of who we are could be derived from diamonds or certain types of volcanic ash or gold or iron or quartz. The carbon that our bodies are composed of could even be derived from ancient asteroids or shooting stars delivered to Earth from the cosmos. You get the idea. Pretty much everything and anything can be broken down by living organisms in the soil, cycled to plants, and then cycled into animals. Definitely. So I'm going to pull up another video for you. This next sample that we look at under the microscope is truly mind-blowing. So we're 400 times the magnification of the human eye. And when I see this, I feel like I'm looking into the universe. I'm looking at the cosmos. There's an ethereal, infinite community, an energy system that is abundant and that's present 
And this is within our soil. Andy's about to show me the creative capacity of this underground ecosystem. In real time, I'm going to see how all life is cycled through death, through decay, back into rebirth. And guess what? It all happens in the soil. It's all about nutrient cycling. So when we're looking at these predators in the soil feeding on bacteria and taking up um, carbon that once was atmospheric, then it went through the plant, became a sugar, was released into the soil, consumed by bacteria, and then an amoeba comes along or a nematode and eats that bacteria. And then it, the carbon becomes part of that organism. And then it's released into the soil. So it, it eventually comes back to when we eat the plants and, or an animal, because animals eat plants as well, right? Um, that's, that's how the nutrients are cycling. So the carbon's always coming into our bodies from what we consume primarily. Outside of oxygen, really, um, most of our makeup is coming from what we eat. And that's why people say, you are what you eat. And really, when you think about it, you are what you eat eats too, right? Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Friends, I'm so excited to have you join me on today's story. This one is near and dear to my heart. I've been wanting to produce this episode since the conceptualization of this podcast. And so we're going to go back to the greater system to which we belong. Go back to the earth, specifically go back to the soil, which is the beginning. It's the ending. It's the transformation of all life on this planet. We are biologically engineered in every capacity to express and to celebrate ourselves as a part of nature, as a part of soil. This is not only within us, this is us. And we're digging deep, digging deep in nutrient-dense living soil to find ourselves. Think of this episode as an awakening. This is your mother, big mother, Mama Earth, calling you home, getting ready to give you an embrace and tell you that she loves you. I'm so excited to t finally talk to someone about this yeah. very topic. I just feel like you're really special and you have this gift that's incredible and this passion and this direction in your life that's led you here, which is really special. So, oh, yeah. Thank you for saying that. No, thank you for helping to communicate this and doing it in a way that's exciting. And I think one of the biggest obstacles for getting people to care about soil systems and the diversity of the organisms underneath the soil and how important they are for our civilization and for our species and for our planet it's just really hard to communicate that in a way that's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that's something that you've been working on, but what, what, what have you found is like, how do you relate this to people? What's your biggest hook? Yeah, 
It's really about making that connection of how is soil health related to human health? And there's an endless list of examples of how that connection um, exists in our day-to-day -day life. And so in ecology, we call any kind of benefit or function of a natural resource, uh, we call it ecosystem services. Um, so any, I'll, I'll kind of restate that to make that a little bit more clear. So in ecology, we call any kind of benefit or function that a natural resource provides to us humans is called an ecosystem service. And for when it comes to soil, ecosystem services, um, I'll just list off a few categories that we could that dig even deeper into. But ecosystem services for healthy, this is specific to healthy soils. So I want to clarify that. Good distinction. Right? Healthy soils provide the following ecosystem services. Water, um, including absorption, filtration, retention of water, food, so nutrients. Um, it informs our microbiome. Uh, it becomes our nitrogen source. Fiber and clothing, so whether that's coming from sheep's wool or cotton, that all goes, goes back to the soil. Uh, building materials, so all of our lumber, um, even, even mineral-based building materials, right, like brick and masonry. Uh, decomposition is a huge one, right? We have so much cycling all the time, things that uh, plants that are dying, animals that are dying, and it's constantly being decomposed by the soil. That's a service to us. Air. So soil supports plants, which provide oxygen, um, as well as mitigating air pollution. If you have a healthy soil system, that's possible. Carbon storage. There's a fossil record that the soil protects too, which is really informative to us. Uh, Medicine, there's been a lot of medicine that's been discovered through soil organisms. And lastly, I'd mentioned culture. So if you think about the places you like to recreate, the parks, the gardens you like to spend time in, any kind of landscape, soil is the, the basis of, of those spaces. Yeah, that's huge. So pretty much you're saying that soil is the foundation for everything that we enjoy as a human and, and the catalyst for the human experience. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything that's not um, based on soil systems? I think that is the better question. Maybe an easier question is what isn't uh, supported by soil systems. And I really can't think of anything off the top of my head um, in terms of our most important needs, right? Sure. Um, water, shelter, those kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. So I just got so excited that I just skipped over something kind of important. But when you were talking about nutrient cycling, cycling through plants into the soil, feeding the biology in the soil, and then going back to plants, which either animals eat or we eat or we eat the animals. And so that's like the building blocks of who we are. Right. We are literally created from soil systems. Right. And I think that's so majestic and yes. so magical. And there has to be this deep inherent affinity or appreciation or respect for soil systems that maybe we're disconnected as a modern civilization. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's, um, that's where we need to focus that. And that's the call, right? That's what you're working on. That's what we're working on is calling to action, returning people back home to those soil systems that we came from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. 
And, and I think a lot of times with, with soil, um, and even ecosystems in general, you know, people might be listening to this and like, damn, Andy is so fucking smart. I, I can't even begin to speak to this intelligently. And I feel that way too, being around you, by the way. But <laughs> I, I do believe that there is something in all of us being from the soil, um, that we can understand it and we can read it, but I just believe that's been atrophied. So like, mm -hmm. what are some things that everyday people can do mm. to appreciate landscapes and mm. connect with soil? Yeah. What a great question. I think just kind of holding space for this concept, like considering as you go on a walk, um, all the ways in which soil systems inform your environment and experience of earth, right? Imagine for a second what life was like before these organisms lived in the soil and transformed it into something that could support plants, right? Without living soils, we don't really have plants. And so it was, it was a time where there was just land was mineral and land didn't have the capacity to grow life um, or support human life. So it's very humbling to think about this being soil life being the start of a series of events throughout geological time that has led us to humans and all of our wonder, all of our consciousness, all of our emotions are like these emergent properties that make us human are really um, unique and worth protecting. And so I mentioned that because when, when I consider my environmentalist approach to my work, it's not so much about saving earth, right? And protecting earth as it is, uh, now just for the sake of doing that. It's more about understanding that all of our human experience relies on us maintaining an environment under which we evolved. Um, so if we don't steward those conditions, this planet will continue without us. But as you mentioned, like we come from Earth, literally, and we get to consciously observe Earth. And that's a very novel thing and it's worth protecting. Yeah. I, you know, when people tell me it's our responsibility, our actions, the outcome of our decisions on a day-to-day -day basis is we're either going to save planet Earth or destroy planet Earth. But I'm kind of with you in the sense that the earth will be fine without us right. as it was for billions of years. And so there'll be a, maybe another resurgence of life if we choose not to co-collaborate and coexist mm -hmm. at this point in earth's history, which I think would be a shame. Obviously this is a beautiful planet that we were gifted in. A, I mean, all of these living souls, these humans, what like 7.9 billion of us now that are here, we get to be here and we get to interact in this point of time where if you look back through human history, we're at kind of this critical moment where we have more access to information, the ability to interact, to try to understand our environment 
at a level that some of our ancestors could have never imagined. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have the natural resources still present that we can enjoy on a spiritual, cultural level. But I think, you know, how we move forward from this point in time really does matter. Absolutely. This this is definitely an interesting point in history where we have the self-awareness of how we impact our environment and how that in turn impacts our experience of this planet. And so now is the time to steward better. Yeah. I think um, we talked about how we are born come from the soil. And I don't know why every podcast seems to kind of circle back to this idea of, of death, but it's like this beautiful cycle of life that's yeah. been in place for millennia. And so, you know, you have the birth, the birth phase, the creation that we spoke of from the womb of mother earth, from the soil. And then you live this hopefully amazing life, right? Your soul is manifesting in this journey and you just get to celebrate and experience the diverse robustness of life. And then you have death and then decay. Mm -hmm. And so what happens in that decay process with mm -hmm. the human body? Yeah. Well, what's cool about this and humbling about this is we decompose just like any other living thing, right? And so all of the organisms, those microbes that live on us and within us, um, once we're no longer living and providing the certain uh, habitat or benefits, that symbiotic relationship that we have with them now as, as living beings, once that's no longer there, they would start consuming us. Um, and you can also think about any microorganisms that our immune system was suppressing while alive. Um, once we pass, uh, those organisms would have an opportunity to uh, probably grow and um, it would call in more, more and more organisms to um, start taking us apart molecule by molecule and returning us to the rhizosphere. Wow. And then to be almost reborn again. Totally. Yeah. Those molecules are now in a soil system and available for other organisms to interact with and take up themselves and continue transitioning those to other living organisms. Oh my gosh. So you could be like part mountain lion oh, from totally. a previous life, part grizzly bear, yeah. bald eagle. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying, of course, all the most badass. <laughs> right. You could right. also be... Um, a worm or <laughs> which I think is cool, but <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty badass if you know what's up with worms, but no, that's, that's beautiful. I think that is such like a, a representation that death is not an end point. And that's something that we, uh, yeah. we typically think about as our life is a, is a linear journey, mm -hmm. but you're saying that we can actually be cycled and, and a lot of cultures from around the world throughout time have believed in this idea of, um, being reborn yeah. or, you know, coming back, um, in another life. And so I think there's definitely some truth to that and some wisdom. Oh yes. And then also what you're talking about, it's just like, there's no waste in nature, right? Everything is utilized. Yes, definitely. That's so cool. Yeah. And, uh, what's really cool and, um, you know, for us living in this era where we are, uh, casting out a lot of synthetic materials is that, uh, nature does have its way of, of dealing with those, right? So it, although it's harmful on the surface um, for us, like 
nature's taking care of it. Again, it's just a matter of whether or not uh, the way that nature is dealing with it is contributing to our health. And we know that it's not. So we need to be doing something differently. Mm-hmm. You know, there has to be some some manifestation of your soul, like how your body breaks down. Obviously, it's it's a separate deal. Your body's like the animated entity that your soul resides in. But mm-hmm. I just feel like if your body is allowed to break down and be cycled back into the earth, it's like you're 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 returning where you came from and, and your soul's journey has to be so stoked for that. Right. Agreed. You yeah. Know what I mean? And and it's also I just I just think that um you know like I, I read this um there's multiple accounts of people, you know, like that have been brought back from near-death experiences so Mm -hmm. either in the hospital across all spectrums of life all different types of you know from traumatic acute car wreck injuries to like cancer Mm -hmm. coming back but there's like this overwhelming um consistency where these people come back to consciousness and and they're almost upset they're like why did you do that yeah um and and like as as that soul was released as they were transitioning to death they felt like this general acceptance and this love from a greater universe and they Mm -hmm. felt like they belonged and so i just think that's magical and and maybe that's mother earth calling Mm -hmm. you know that's this ancient rhythm that we try to separate ourselves from as human beings but like you said all living organisms decompose and break down the same way right right and i've heard the same thing uh are you are you familiar with michael Pollan? The writer, he's like a garden writer. Oh, I love, yes. Yeah, so he, one of his more recent books was about um, like plant-induced like spiritual experiences, right? And a lot of the positive experiences are all kind of this theme of your body expanding into your environment and like realizing the interconnectedness of the earth. And I don't think that that's, like a mistake that a plant that you consume could have that effect on you of realizing just how interconnected we are. Okay. By this point in the story, I hope you guys are feeling connected, very grounded, very humble. Matter of fact, let's dive in to some root words. Okay. So the idea of humility comes from the Latin word that means earth, right? This is humus, not hummus, that liquefied, sloppy stuff you dip carrots into. I think it's made of garbanzo beans. No, not hummus, humus, H-U-M-U-S. This is the Latin root word for earth. And not only earth, but the richest most nutrient-dense filled soil. Now, in modern gardening, we refer to humus as the crown jewel of soil. It's where all the organic matter is, the soil carbon, massive amounts of biology, tons of diversity, nematodes, bacteria, fungi, protozoa. It's an entire ecosystem that is teeming with life. This is the cosmos for creation. Put a seed in the soil, and it's going to grow into a thriving plant. Okay, so while we're digging deep into the rhizosphere on humus, and the Latin root for earth, right? Teeming with life. It's an important point to consider what other words 
share that same root. And I bet you can guess one. And if you need a clue, look into the mirror. Human. Yes, human shares the same root for humus. And this is an important point to consider because nearly every culture from around the world has some type of origination story that is derived from soil, derived from earth, derived from clay. The list is incredible, but I'm just going to cover a few. So the Blackfoot tribe, a North American Native American community, believed that the first mother and child were formed by a deity, and the formation of mother and child came from clay. The Chinese believed that the goddess Nuwa made the first humans from mud. The indigenous of New Zealand, a tribe called the Maori, believed that Tain Mahatu, the god of forest, created the first woman from clay and breathed life into her. The Mayans believed that humans were created from mud, wood, and corn. In Greek mythology, Prometheus molds humans from earth and water with an emphasis on clay. The idea that humans originated from soil can even be traced into Christianity, in which in the book of Genesis, it was told that humans were created from the dust of the earth. Now, I think our comprehension of soil health has slightly changed since the book of Genesis was created. And I don't really think that dust really captures the essence of human beings. Translated to today's modern terms, I believe it'd be something like topsoil. It would be that layer of the earth that creates life and sustains life and cycles life after death. And so here we are. Humans, derived from humus, staying grounded to the earth through humility. And now back to our conversation with Andy Marsh. Okay, if we're a part of of planet Earth, from Earth, um, we'll eventually go back through Earth. There's there's different environmental phenomena or indicators that kind of like remind me, keep me grounded in the sense that we belong to the soil. We come from the soil. And one of those um, that I think is fascinating is like this whole idea of the scent of geosmin um, and petrichor specifically. Can you, can you just touch on that? Because this is some amazing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't realize until recently just how sensitive we are with detecting you say geosmin. I right. like that. I don't know. I guess I say geosmin. Oh. Yeah. But I like the way that you pronounce it more. It's more magical. And, geosmin. Okay. Yeah. I, I love it. Okay, let's go. <laughs> geosmin and petrichor are terms that describe a scent or an aroma that we're able to perceive um, in our environment. So geosmin specifically comes from... My, microorganisms produce uh, different compounds. And when rainfall comes, it can aerosolize these compounds. So imagine you take like a raindrop hits the ground and the, the splashback from that drop is basically carrying different compounds into airborne uh, molecules. And these things, uh, 
will drift in the wind and make their way to our noses and we can perceive it. So that's when you walk outside and you think, oh, I can smell rain coming. That's a real thing. You do smell rain coming and it's likely because rain has occurred somewhere nearby and uh, these compounds have made their way to your doorstep and, and your nose. Um, so petrichor is a more general term that describes uh, just this, this complex smell of your environment in uh, rain conditions. And geosmin is more specific to a particular compound that comes that we know comes from microorganisms. And so one thing I'd like to point out about this is that you can smell, you can, you can, there's different smells that you might detect um, depending on where you are when rain is occurring. So if you're in a very wooded area, uh, that petrichor smell is going to be very different than if you're in the city or if you're on a prairie. And this goes to show how sensitive we've, we're, we are to uh, perceiving these things. This is one of my absolute favorite, most enchanting conversations that I've had. I adore the smell of petrichor. And I know you do too. Uh, if it's been a while since you've connected with it, just think back to when you were a kid and you would go play in the rain, right? You were celebrating that life-giving force. You were singing with the soil and that smell, that was the smell of Mother Earth. Now, what I think is really fascinating is this concept of different notes, right? And when we think about soil health or lack of soil health, my mind races to a tilled, degraded farm field or maybe an urban setting where there's not a lot of soil or biodiversity to be represented. Now, the petrichor in those scenarios is going to be significantly reduced. There's less biological activity. There's less aromatic compounds to be detected. So if I could characterize the scent of geosmin or petrichor in one of these degraded settings, it would sound something like, like a lonely flute. Still a beautiful noise, the lonely flute is pleasant to the ears, just like the lonely actinomycete soil bacteria is still going to be pleasant to our olfactory senses. But as with music, the more complex the sound becomes, the richer it becomes. Now let's take a step forward in the trophic levels and get to a higher functioning ecosystem. So in this example, imagine that you're in a national park. So we have natural resources and ecological systems and function. However, they might be slightly degraded. What happens is the complexity of the bacteria in the soil is more. Now, this is the audio representation of what petrichor in that setting might smell like. Okay, so in this example, we still have our flute, but it's not as lonely. I hear some strings, clarinet, 
Maybe we'll throw in a little bit of bassoon or oboe. You get the point. This is starting to sound like music. Now I want to transport you to the highest function ecosystem. This would be a native, intact, tall grass prairie ecosystem teeming with life. Or you could think about it as a rainforest. Now, when we describe and translate the smell of rain in this ecosystem, this is truly music to our ears. See what I'm talking about? This is rich. It's coordinated. It's melodic. It's driving. We have... Flutes, oboes, clarinets, bassoons, horns, trumpets, trombones, tubas, strings, percussion, all coming together to create brilliant, beautiful music. Now, many of us may have never smelt petrichor in this setting. And to be honest, the only time in my life that I've smelt the rich intact full capacity of petrichor was on a trail run in the cloud forest of Costa Rica. And the best way to describe that scent was to envision the petrichor or the jasmine smell that you're familiar with and amplify that times a billion. Okay, so if you enjoyed that music that we just listened to, you know, the one that was the representation of the aerosolized compounds of bacteria that make up petrichor, I highly suggest you check out Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Now, this music debuted in 1913 in Paris at a ballet called the Rite of Spring, and it was so revolutionary, it was considered a new noise that people in the audience went completely batshit crazy. They lost their minds. There was riots. The theater was burned. People were fighting. There was looting. This new noise scrambled people's brains. It was the driving melodic rhythm with dissonance. It was almost like the invention of modern day heavy metal. Now, I absolutely adore it. Please check it out. Again, that's Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And in its full glory, from start to finish, it'll blow your freaking mind. I just think it's a good representation of rain and a very healthy, diverse ecosystem. And now back to our amazing conversation with Andy Marsh. Five parts per trillion is our sense of that. So we're, we're so sensitive to geosmin that we can detect it at five parts per trillion, which is greater than most animals can smell most things um, from, what, from what I've researched. For a little perspective here, a shark can detect blood in the water at as little as one part per million. Now, Andy said that our ability as human beings to connect with the smell of petrichor or geosmin as five parts per trillion, we're more sensitive to this smell than a shark is to blood in the water. Now, what does this all mean? You know, geosmin specifically, that smell comes from actinobacteria. So that's a particular organism group in the soil. 
and it does a lot of good things. But if you have a very overwhelming jasmine smell, that probably means that soil lacks diversity and isn't necessarily all that healthy. And so one example of this is there's a very particular smell in tilled fields. And then there's a very an even more particular smell among tilled fields when rain comes through. And that's because a lot of this is exposed. The organisms that once made a very complex, diverse community are now more of a less diverse kind of monoculture of organisms and you have a very overwhelming smell. So uh, sometimes people are like, oh, you know, it smells so earthy and good. And I think, oh, no, it actually smells too much like a lot of geosmin and it's probably not a good thing. So these things are all relative. Like you really got to tap into your senses and take note in different situations when you're immersed in your environment so that you know the difference between a complex orchestra smell and a, a high note kind of dusty tinny smell. Our ability to communicate with Mother Earth through our sense of smell is deeply profound. But my question is, why? Why is it that we are genetically hardwired to receive these signals from healthy, thriving ecosystems that communicate on a cellular level with our bodies at a greater sensitivity than great white sharks. Here, we're going to dive into this conversation and we're just going to throw out some theories because the truth is nobody quite knows. And it's within this uncertainty that allows us to explore this topic at a level with no boundaries and no limitations. So here we go. Let's throw out some theories. Yeah, all I have to go on is speculation at this point, right? These these scents, these aromas are really hard to replicate uh, because they're so complex and they're created by so many different organisms. So it's hard to do research on them. But I think the reason we're so sensitive to them is because we come from them, if that makes sense. We are them. <laughs> like we belong to the earth in a way that allows us to be sensitive to its cues. It's always communicating with us. Earth is always communicating with us. And it's really just a matter of us listening, smelling, touching, responding. So your interpretation is beautiful and it's so profound and I'm 100% there with you Yeah. all day long. And can you imagine too, like a really robust, diverse, healthy smell from the earth too? Like that signal, I mean, mm -hmm. might just bring tears, might just, <laughs> might just get weak in the legs. Right. We're only probably smelling like a fraction, right? Because if all right. land globally has been degraded through some form of agriculture or human mismanagement, we're only probably picking up on a very small percentage of mm -hmm. what we should be receptive to. Right. Um, you know, I wonder too, if it's, this is getting outside of my wheel, my realm, but we, if we're talking about like spores and bacteria being released and aerosol forms, and then we're taking that in, is there some kind of inoculation that's perhaps mm. happening very specific to that environment? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like the, the earth giving you something 
for your own microbiome. Mm, totally. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah, I think that's happening all the time. Like we're being inoculated all the time when we're interacting with our environment, when we're interacting with each other, when we're interacting with our pets. Like we're we're being inoculated with each other's microbiomes all the time and with the microbiome of the earth because uh, microbes are everywhere. And especially when we consume food, that's how we ingest a microbiome, right? So the, all of the microbes that live in our gut, um, which we're understanding is becoming more and more understood to be integral to so many facets of our health, including mental health. Uh, those microbes come from the surfaces of the food we're eating and uh, the nutrients that are contained in the food are also selecting for the microbes that live in our gut. Absolutely. And we know enough now where some people are interpreting the gut microbiome as the second brain, you know, yeah. it's like your, your own instinct, like that voice that calls within you and guides you. Mm -hmm. It's like your compass. And so, you know, if your compass is diverse and robust and resilient and in tune with your environment and the natural world, that's a pretty damn good compass. You should listen to that one. Right. But if you are unfortunately, yeah, nuking your gut microbiome, not eating whole foods grown in living, thriving, resilient soil, you're probably a direct reflection of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that could be um, a loss of instinct, a loss of connection that's only further dividing us from where we came. Right. Definitely. There's a theme I see, whether we're talking about a soil system, our gut, our communities, like our, our interpersonal connections, like the more diversity there is, the healthier we are. That's so funny you say that. I, I do always relate, yeah, health, mental health, physical health, the human body as an organism to soil systems. And there's pretty much not any way to um, find an analogy or a comparison that doesn't exist. Exactly. It's like one in the same. We are from it and it is within us. Right. And, and we try to separate ourselves from that natural system, but uh, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. I have to step in here because there's so much amazing information that I want to add. Shortly after recording this podcast with Andy, I watched a Ted talk video from Nicole Masters. Now, Nicole Masters is a internationally recognized agroecologist. She is a true badass, soil whisperer, if you can say. And she's also the author of For the Love of Soil, which is one of my favorite soil health books. Anyways, in this TED Talk, Nicole Masters starts visiting this very conversation that we're diving into about petrichor and geosmin. And what Nicole adds to the conversation and the perspective of why this is happening, how this is communicating to our bodies. What is the function of petrichor and the smell of geosmin? And Nicole Masters says that there's over 400 antibiotics made from the actinobacteria that releases these spores from the soil. So we are literally breathing in antibiotics. We are inhaling prescribed medication from Mother Earth. Now, we're also talking a little bit about the gut biome 
And to add an interesting perspective, Nicole Masters has indicated that 90% of the serotonin that makes us feel good, that makes us feel happy, joy, love, you know what I'm talking about. 90% of the serotonin in our body is produced in the gut biome. And that gut biome has to be inoculated with healthy, thriving soil and healthy, thriving plants grown in those soils and healthy, thriving animals that consume those plants. It's all connected, people. Our relationship to soil is a precursor for our own happiness. Now, when I think of the function and I theorize on the purpose of our heightened sensitivity to the smell of rain and soil and petrichor, what we're talking about here, I go to a place where your mother is calling. And I'm not talking about your human biological birth mother. I'm talking about big mama. That's mama earth. And in this circumstance, what I envision is she's cold calling you because she's thinking about you. She's always thinking about you. You're her baby. You are from her. And she wants you to know that she loves you and that she's proud of you and that she hopes that you're living your best life. Now, let's gaze into the microscope one more time with Andy. This is one final topic that she's super passionate about and really wants to cover before we part. I get really excited about aggregate formation and that's like something that could probably bore someone if I don't do it if I don't do it justice and like explaining what aggregates are and why they're so important to us. Sure. Um so I'm happy to like kind of take a stab at it and if you think there's a better more interesting way to explain it, we can give it a second go. Okay. Yeah, let's let's do it. Okay, so in this microscopy footage, we're looking at what is called an aggregate. And so you can kind of see these strands coming off of it are fungi and surrounding it are more bacteria. And here's an amoeba. Basically, all microbes tend to exude some kind of substance and bacteria do this and it, it cements together soil minerals. So your sand, clay, uh, silt. Uh, particles. And when they do that, it, it creates what we call a microaggregate. And then fungi come in and they exude their substances and they basically are pulling together all of those microaggregates and to form a macroaggregate. And on the surface, this might sound really boring, like your snooze fest of a soil science class, but it's really magical because this is what soil structure is. When you have soil life in doing its thing, it's creating all of this pore space and pore space is a place for water to infiltrate. It's creating surface area for that water to actually react with the carbon in the soil, which is filtering the water. It's creating pore space for air to move through, which benefits uh, the different species in the soil as well as the roots of our plants. So it's just this never-ending benefit that this these organisms create aggregates and create structure in the soil like it's a never-ending service to humanity um, that these organisms naturally do that how can you how can you see this outside of a microscope like 
shovel in your backyard, shovel in a healthy field or shoveled in a degraded field? What are the differences with aggregates? Yes. Good question. When you dig up a plant, I would do this with grass so that you're not like destroying a plant in the process. But if you dig up some grass and you try to get some of the roots out, just kind of pull, you know, gently pull up and whatever's kind of sticking to those roots those are generally aggregates. If everything kind of falls off, you probably don't have great soil structure. Or if it's like super sticky and tacky, you have just like a lot of clay that also doesn't have soil structure. But if it's crumbly and kind of brownie-like in structure, it's acting as a sponge on your land. So you're really able to capture the rainfall that lands there and filter that water to make it clean, which recharges our aquifers and our rivers. Uh, and you're retaining that water, which makes your landscape more drought tolerant. Wow. I think of um, an Alan Savory quote where it's, you know, it's not um, drought that drought does not cause bare soil. It's bare soil that causes drought. Yes. And this is what you're referring to. You have to have covered soil. You have to have living plants feeding the biology within the soil that robust ecosystem performing these services, producing aggregates so that soil can function. Yes, exactly. But somewhere along the line, we forgot this biological approach and we went 100% double down on chemical mechanical. But does yeah. this happen in, a, in an industrial herbicide, fungicide, pesticide tilled field? No, those fields are treating soil strictly as a substrate a place for roots to exist, but to not necessarily interact with their symbiotic partners. So you're missing out on all of these benefits that the plants could be getting from the natural partnerships that they've evolved to have below ground. This seems like, I mean, the most essential fundamental thing that we should be learning. I did not go to agricultural college, thankfully, but <laughs> I know from many friends that they don't teach biology, ecosystems functioning holistically, right? It's all like chemical mechanical tools, but this is like so fundamental and it's sad that it's separated from our agricultural systems. This is like considered more like ecology, conservation, wild mm -hmm. areas, but for some reason we can't connect looking into mother nature for wisdom and for guidance and recognizing that all farms and ranches come from either the savanna, the prairie, the woodland, mm -hmm. and like this happens in all those high functioning natural ecosystems. So it should be happening in our agricultural systems too. Right. And the common example to illustrate this is we don't fertilize the forests. We don't fertilize these native prairies, they take care of themselves. And it's all through the relationships between the plants and the organisms. And when we disrupt that, all of a sudden we put the onus on us to pull the levers for plant nutrients. And that's a big responsibility. You know, we've done a good job of figuring out how to make a normal looking plant come out of the ground when we disrupt that cycle. But that doesn't mean we are producing a crop that has the most nutrient density, which is what we want for our own health. So if we're, I read somewhere that we're losing 36 billion tons of topsoil annually mm -hmm. in the United States. It's like our most expensive uh, export. It's like over a trillion dollar value, something crazy like that. Yeah. And 
it seems to me like this aggregate, this is a glue that if intact, I would imagine makes that system more resilient towards flash flood and the effects of losing topsoil, right? Oh, definitely. And wind too. So if you're protecting your soil surfaces with uh, plants and mulch and you have good aggregate formation, you'll be much less likely to lose your topsoil to wind, which uh, improves our air quality across the nation and beyond because wind knows no bounds and it will carry the particulate matter from these exposed soil systems far and wide. So yes, when you have good aggregate formation and good coverage uh, through vegetation and, and mulch, you'll have far less air pollution as well. Yes, we just ended on pore space. Pore space for healthy soil. And let's hold more pore space for our own health. Let's feed the biological systems in our soil and let's feed the biological systems in our body because they are one and the same. They are inseparable. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did, please share it with your friends. This episode has made me feel so grateful so grounded, so connected to a greater ecosystem to which we all belong. And I hope you guys feel that too. So special thanks to my special guest, Andy Marsh. She's a total badass people. I'm telling you, if you want to follow Andy, see all the amazing content she's creating, please head over to her website. It's rhizos.science. That's R-H-I-Z-O-S dot science. You can also head over to Instagram and follow her account. Her handle is at soil is sexy, which I agree with, but you know what is not sexy? You know what is anti-sexy is dirt, lifeless soil with no petrichor smell. So if you can get down with the idea of healthy soil as sexy, then I ask for you to do one thing for me, which is please give this episode a five-star rating, review it, share it with your friends. That helps us increase, amplify, accelerate this powerful message and amplify our own ability to create positive impact, which is what this podcast is all about. Now, to feed your own biological systems, please head over to forceofnature.com and vote with your dollars. Vote for a system that heals the earth, that resonates with your own spirit and your own values, that improves and promotes the diverse, bountiful orchestra of Petrichor in a brilliant, thriving ecosystem. So that's forceofnature.com. And lastly, if anyone out there wants to share some theories or your own ideas on why we are so attuned and sensitive to the smell of petrichor, what that relationship is serving, I would love to hear your ideas. So please, you can email those to me. It's taylor at romeranch.com. And let's nerd out. I want to know what you have to say because there is wisdom within all of us. This is where we're from. This is where we belong. And much like the diversity of soil systems that adds resilience, diversity of thought adds resilience. And so I want to know what you have to say. 
until we meet again, I hope that you have gentle, peaceful, slow, infiltrating rain that kicks up and aerosolizes the beautiful scent of Petrichor. Farewell. <laughs>